Good afternoon. It's really an honor to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about what I feel is one of the biggest challenges of our time, climate change, but also why it can be one of our biggest opportunities, especially with technology. I really think that that's the only solution. Let me tell you the story about how we got here and how I feel we can solve this. Well, once upon a time, we actually lived in the biology era, the biology era of energy, where we got all of our energy from plants, from animal muscles, from our own muscles. Then, after a million years, we switched to the chemistry era. The chemistry era was when we burned everything in sight. We got all of our energy by burning things. I feel we need to switch to the physics era. The physics era is where we'll get all of our energy from the sun, the wind, and nuclear. The reason we need to enter the physics era is because we really are trashing the Earth. We are putting trash everywhere. All of us here produce about one pound of trash per day, all of us here on Earth. Seven and a half billion people, seven and a half billion pounds of trash every single day. But less well known than the trash we put in our landfills is the trash we put in the atmosphere. It's 31 times as much. Every single person puts 31 pounds of CO2 into the atmosphere every day. And that's dividing everybody in the Earth evenly. Those of us in this room, higher standard of living, probably five or 10 times as much. So imagine this. Each of us is putting our body weight of CO2 up into the atmosphere every single day. Our body weight of CO2 looks about like this. This is actually drawn to scale. It's 100,000 cubic meters of CO2 that every single one of us is producing. That's a person in the bottom there. That's the size of it. It's 50 times the volume of this tent that every one of us is making every single day. And we're basically using the atmosphere for that landfill. If we could see it, we probably would do more about it. If it was actually more visible, the fact that it's so invisible makes it much more of a problem. We're putting it all in this thin sliver of the atmosphere, and it's causing all kinds of problems. The extra heat that we're adding to the planet, to the ground, to the oceans, because of that extra CO2, is equal to three Hiroshima bombs going off every single second of every single day. Imagine if we were looking at another planet, a beautiful blue planet, where, where water was there, which was the essence of all of life, and we were heating that, and we watched those people heating up that planet with three atomic blasts every single second. You would say, why is that continuing? Well, it's really, really hard to change. The effects have been catastrophic. All of you know about this. The weather changes, the, the more severe storms, winters, fires. A billion animals died in Australia in just the last month. Like, that's how much damage this is causing. The solution actually is amazingly simple. It's just four words, four very hard words, but it's just stop burning fossil fuels. We are exhuming the dead animals from 300 million years ago and burning them up to get all of our energy. The reason this is so hard is because we love our lifestyles. All of our lifestyle is powered by this low cost energy. If you take a look at this graph, energy is the most important industry on Earth. This is a graph of the last 700 years of the GDP per capita. You can see it's very, very flat for about 600 of those years until it takes off like a rocket ship once we discover we can burn cheap energy to power our Earth. So all of a sudden we had dramatic GDP growth because all of our lifestyle is powered by that. Energy is the biggest industry on Earth. It accounts for 10% of the entire $86 trillion global GDP. So it's enormous. And price really matters. This is a graph showing market share of different sources of energy as you reduce the price per kilowatt hour. Every time you reduce the price by just one cent, 
the size goes up by $1 trillion. That's how sensitive it is. Think, imagine any other market where you change the price by one cent and there's a trillion dollars of extra market share. Well, that's the energy market. That's how sensitive things are. And people are not willing to pay more. Renewable energy just has to be cheaper than fossil fuels to make an impact because even just in the last year, when governments increased even a small amount of taxes on energy, people were rioting in the streets. Like that's how much energy matters to people's livelihood, to their lifestyle, and to, their, to everything about their way of life. So how do we make renewable energy cheaper than fossil fuel? That's really what I feel we have to do. We need to beat that by that one cent to make everybody move to this new renewable source of energy. So let me quickly tell you about my journey, about how I discovered the answer to this conundrum. This is the biggest challenge that we face right now. Well, my journey started in the San Fernando Valley. I was a, a young boy in junior high school selling candy bars at the bus stop, making one penny per candy bar, and I earned $400 selling those candy bars, and I went out and bought this Shopsmith power tool so I could make things out of wood, metal, and acrylic. I really was excited about that. And then I started making all these bowls and lamps and checkerboards, and I took old phones apart and turned them back into phones that I could sell for $49. And believe it or not, Right here where we are at the Rose Bowl, my uncle Jeffrey got a small booth for me at the swap meet at the Rose, at the Rose Bowl every month, and I sold these, and I, I used that money to get really, really excited about my next passion, which started in 1973. It was a transformative event that happened to me when I saw the energy crisis and gasoline rationing. This is Ventura Boulevard in 1973, where there were mile-long lines of cars to buy $5 of rationed gasoline. And my mother couldn't even buy enough gasoline for us to be able to take us to school. My brother and I had to ride five miles to school on our bicycles because you couldn't get enough gasoline. So I got so excited about alternative energy. How could alternative energy, even back then, how could alternative energy make an impact on the planet's use of energy? So I started making all kinds of solar concentrators. First, little parabolas out of cardboard, then little dishes out of metal and glass. And I started a little company called Solar Devices to sell them in the back of Popular Science Magazine. I made little kits and plans for them. I had my little peachy folder in the back of my English class. And while other people were writing their book reports on Shakespeare, I was writing about parabolas and my mailing list and the people who were ordering plans for me. I was drawing these things up. For me, I was writing down the basic problem of the construction of the paraboloid is the shape of the sector. So that's what I was working on at that time. I was pretty nerdy in high school. But I was able to make these plans and kits. These are the things I sold. And I was able to sell 10,000 of them for $4 each to pay my way through college. So I went to college right here in Pasadena. And when I graduated, it was 1981, it was the exact month the IBM PC came out. I went down to computer land on Lake Avenue. I bought this IBM PC for $5,000, monochrome display, two floppy drives, 256K of RAM. I was so excited. My brother and I both learned how to program, and we made a little natural language interface to Lotus 123. And Lotus acquired that company in 1985. And then when my son started kindergarten in 1991, I started a knowledge adventure, an educational software company to help kids fall in love with learning, and sold that company in 1995. And I was really, really bitten by the entrepreneurship bug. And I wanted to do so many different ideas when the Netscape browser came out that I decided to start Idealab. Instead of being a serial entrepreneur, I wanted to be a parallel entrepreneur. Start multiple things at a time, all under one roof. And Idealab as this first incubator was really a wild idea. I didn't know if it would work. But it was something I wanted to try as an experiment to put multiple companies under one roof. We started with these first 12 ideas in 1996. Um, only seven of them were able to get additional funding, but five of them were able to go public, and that gave me the funding to continue to run Idealab. And over the years, last 24 years, we've started more than 150 companies in many, many different areas. After the dot-com crash, I started thinking about where was my biggest passion, and I turned back to that event that happened to be in 1973, and I said, I want to take some of the funding that we have, build a machine shop at Idealab, start making not just internet companies, but companies that can make an impact on renewable energy. 
Across these years, over 150 companies, we had 50 companies that had successful exits, IPOs or acquisitions. We have 40 operating companies right now, but we had 60 failures. So I learned a lot of lessons from those failures. I'm going to tell you the four biggest lessons I learned from those failures and show you how those apply to solving this energy crisis, I believe. So what were the four most valuable lessons I learned across those last 24 years? The things that some, I wish someone had told me 24 years ago before starting Idealab. Well, the first one is timing. I gave a whole TED talk about this. I think timing is so much of a factor in the success or failure of an idea. The world has to be ready and want what you're making. It comes down to product market fit also, but the world has to be able to have all the things in place to accept what you're actually building. There were many companies that we started way too early. Of course, many of the companies from even before the dot-com crash have been rebuilt now and started because the timing is right. You need the right adoption of GPS. You need the right adoption of broadband. So many different things that we started too early because the world wasn't ready for them. Well, right now, the world is completely ready for renovation of the energy system. That is what the world needs. So timing is absolutely perfect for exactly what I'm talking about today. The second lesson, iterate. I started the company Idealab. I love ideas. I called it Idealab because of that. But in fact, almost none of the ideas we start with end up being the final idea. They all have some small or even massive iteration to get to the final idea in the search of product market fit. I think it's not a little bit about product market fit, it's all about product market fit. And I think the only way to get there is to iterate the idea to find that. So I realize in hindsight, maybe I should have called it Iterate Lab, not Idea Lab, but I really, really think that iteration is the key to success for so many of the companies, and you'll see how I'm, I believe that's applicable in this energy challenge we face right now. Third, use Moore's Law. Exponential curves crush linear. Nothing has ever gone down as much in price or increased as much in power as computation. Uh, businesses that smartly use this win. So I look back at the companies of ours that really succeeded, and the, the ones that really took advantage of this really, really made a big, big impact, much more so than ones that didn't. Uh, if you take a look at all commodities, whether it's oil or beef or sugar or coffee, they all fluctuate in price over time. But only one thing has gone down dramatically and consistently, and that's the cost of computation. I have this here to drive home that example. This is uh, an old memory card from a little more than 50 years ago. It was hand-woven with 32 wires by 32 wires. So there's 1,024 little cores there that store 1,024 bits. So this is 128 bytes of memory right here for $1,000. And right now, this is 128 gigabytes for $9.95 at Amazon. So it's gone down in price by a factor of 100. It's gone down in size by a factor of 100. And it's gone up in power by a factor of a billion. A billion. So there's a total factor of a trillion here, a trillion in 50 years. Nothing in history has ever changed by a cost of a trillion in 50 years. Nothing's ever changed by a cost of a trillion ever. So taking advantage of this and harnessing this, I feel is the answer. And I'll tell you how I think this is going to apply to the climate change solution. And finally, my fourth lesson, totally learned this one, maybe the hard way, persistence. The emotional journey of creating anything great almost always crosses through a dark swamp of despair in the middle. You start off with, the, oh, this is the best idea ever, and you're all excited about it. It's going to be fun. Then you start realizing it's a little harder than you thought. Then you realize it's going to be a lot of work. And then you realize, oh my god, I don't know how I got myself into this, and you're in that dark swamp of despair. Powering across that, getting to the other side, First of all, most people only see the very left edge and the very right edge. They don't see all the hard work in the middle and that dark swamp in the middle. But all the great entrepreneurs have gone through this. Walt Disney went through this. Steve Jobs went through this. Everybody goes through this. And I didn't know that. I didn't know. So many of the articles that lionize entrepreneurship don't talk about that hard part in the middle. They only talk about the great success at the end. 
So this definitely applies to the climate solution and definitely we have to have persistence to get through this. So now let me talk about applying these four things to the challenges of our time. How can we use these lessons to use technology and computation cost? What energy problems do we need to solve with these four things? Well, the first one is energy storage. I'll tell you why that's so important and why we need to make energy storage as cheap as dirt. The reason we need to do that is in all of history, we reached a major tipping point in 2017. In 2017, for the first time ever, we could make electricity from renewable energy, from the sun and wind, cheaper than burning fossil fuels. Six cents, five cents, and now wind is three cents and solar is two. In fact, just last month, a power purchase agreement for 25 years was signed in the Middle East for 1.68 cents per kilowatt hour, so even lower than two cents. Cheapest energy in history from the sun directly. So what's the problem? Renewables have completely won, but at the wrong time of day. They come only when the sun is shining and when the wind is blowing. That's why storage is so important. And amazingly, and I learned this, it's actually cheaper to make energy than it is to store it. Storing energy is much, much harder than actually making it in the first place. So coming up with a way to store energy che more cheaply is very important. This is the cost of making energy, 10 cents, 6 cents, 5 cents, 3 cents, 2 cents. But this is the cost of storing energy. I'll show you. We need to get that way, way down. The low cost hurdle for storing energy we need to make such that when we add it to the cost of making energy, it's cheaper than fossil fuels. Well, there's only three major ways to store energy. Chemically, with batteries of all types, and everybody's working on driving down the price of that. Thermally, with hot or cold, many people are working on storing energy that way too. Or mechanically, gravity, compressed air, flywheels, things like that. Well, gravity is the biggest energy storage system in the world right now. We use the water cycle for that. It's basically pumped hydro. We either let rain fall into a dam or we pump water up a mountain. That is 94% of all the energy we store in the world right now is done by gravity with that method. This is the cost of energy storage. Flywheels are 45 cents a kilowatt hour. Batteries are between 25 and 28 cents. Pumped hydro, the cheapest, as I just told you, is 17 cents. We need to get to three. We need some way to get down to three cents, because then two cents for solar plus three cents for storage would be cheaper than fossil fuels, but then it could be 24 hours a day. Then we finally would, could put an end to fossil fuels for electricity. So how do we do it? Pumped hydro looks like this, 17 cents a kilowatt hour, you pump water up a hill, you need a reservoir at the top, you need a hill, you let the water flow back down, you turn a turbine the other direction, you get the energy back. Well, I was trying to figure out some way that we could simulate pumped hydro, but without needing the mountain. So I started looking at a whole bunch of different angles to do that. The simplest one was, what about if you just built a big concrete silo, pumped the water up it, and then had the water come back out? That would be one way, but that was more expensive than pumped hydro, so that didn't work. It's because the cost of the concrete to build the building to hold all that water is too expensive. Also looked at building a big mound out of gravel, like having a conveyor belt, lift the gravel up, build a mound like that, have it come back down. That was even more expensive. Looked at having a crane lift up a big weight. That was the worst. That was 60 cents a kilowatt hour, so I was going in the wrong direction. But then a eureka moment came. I was working with Andrea, our CTO, and the idea of using computer vision and AI to make the crane lift and stack blocks automatically. That was the eureka moment. This is me in my shop at home with my son and a little $40 toy Amazon crane and a bunch of blocks. Imagine that you could have a crane that could stack the blocks. Now you wouldn't have the cost of all the metal in the crane for only lifting one weight, but you could lift each block off. And that led to this idea. A computer-controlled crane with six arms stacking blocks into a tower, building a tower around the crane when you have excess energy, lowering the blocks down. It's like pumped hydro, but it's sort of pumped concrete. But it's not pumped, it's lifting. 
And what this allows you to do is build a system that could take all the power from a solar farm or, or all the power from a windmill, store it when the wind is blowing, when the sun's shining, but then by lowering the weights back to the ground, get the energy back right when you need it. And what it looks like is this. You have a bunch of uh, blocks. These are, this is a big system. This is for grid size scale. This is not for a home, home use, but this is for powering an entire city. Each one of these towers stores 35 megawatt hours. It's a 30-story building. It's 100 meters tall. And each block, there's 4,000 blocks that weigh 35 tons each. So it's a huge, huge amount. But it's way smaller than a dam, and it's way less disruptive than a dam, and it can use entirely recycled material in the blocks. So you actually can kill two birds with one stone by building the blocks out of waste material as well. As the, as the energy is pumped in, you charge up the tower. You can see it's fully charged in the middle. And then as you want energy back, you take it out by lowering the blocks down, back down to the ground. So this system used all of these things. It took many iterations to get to this answer. It uses computation like crazy. There's so much going on in this automated crane to solve for wind, to solve for seismic loads, to automatically pick the right ballet sequence of ordering the blocks. But it all works, and it uses a huge amount of computation, which is super cheap. You could buy one NVIDIA GPU card for $299 that could do all of that in real time now. And we are so excited about this. The first system is being built in southern Switzerland, right near Lugano. We announced this about a year ago. It's $7 million for one of these big 35 megawatt hour systems. We got 1,500 orders of demand from around the world, so more than $10 billion of demand in just the first year, just because once you can store energy cheaply, it makes a huge difference for powering the grid renewably. With the way we have this now, we've gotten this down to 3.5 cents a kilowatt hour, and by using more material that is recyclable in the blocks, in, in some cases where people will pay us to take that material away, I believe we can get below 3 cents. So that's energy storage. What else do we need to try to do to reduce our carbon footprint? Another huge thing we need to do is solve the problem of burning fossil fuels for industrial heat. Electricity is a huge part of our problem, but it's only 25%. 75% is industrial heat that we use for all of our built world. All of the concrete, steel, glass around us uses high temperature heat to make those materials. Here's a graph of all the different temperatures we use to make the materials in our world, and 20% of our global emissions come from things that we make at above 1,000 degrees centigrade. Cement being the biggest. Cement alone is 8% of all of our global emissions. Think about that. All of aviation is only 2%. So cement is four times more than every airplane in the world. That's how much emissions comes from making cement because it requires a huge amount of fossil fuels and a huge amount of release of CO2 when you take the limestone and prepare it to make cement. So I set out to try and figure out a way to make cement with no fossil fuels. But it took getting above 1,000 degrees C. And concentrated solar that normally looks like this only goes up to 600 C. Concentrated solar is a large field of mirrors concentrated into a single tower. It caps out at 600 C. You can make steam, you can run a steam turbine, but you can't make cement. How can we use Moore's law to, to try and address this one? So we started looking again at many, many iterations, all different ways of taking mirrors in different systems, pointing them in different ways, moving them, gang, separately, all these different angles. But then we finally came up with this way of using a computer vision system to identify the boundaries of each mirror so you could deploy them very easily to identify the direction that each mirror is pointing very accurately at 30 frames a second, again using NVIDIA, and allow us to get well above 1,000 C all the way to 1,500 C. 1,500 C is one-third the temperature of the surface of the sun. And we can actually achieve that on Earth just by taking these mirrors and pointing them very accurately. This is what it looks like from above. We built a, a demonstration of this in Lancaster, about 45 minutes north of here. And this is what the computer vision system sees. There are cameras looking out at the field, seeing all the mirrors. 
At 30 frames a second, it's analyzing the precise angle of every one of those mirrors and pointing them super accurately, correcting them for any thermal expansion, movement of the Earth, wind, sun movement, everything, to get them all to point very accurately to one precise spot. And that one precise spot is that target you see on the right. The previous target I showed you of concentrated solar was the size of the stage, almost the width of this room. This target is the size of a basketball hoop. It's only 18 inches diameter. The precise pointing that Moore's law gives us allows us to achieve these arbitrarily high temperatures because we can get all the light in a very tiny spot. In that tiny spot on the right, we can achieve 1,500 degrees centigrade. So if we bring limestone to that spot, we can create cement out of it with no CO2 emissions at all. We can take steel and melt it with no CO2 emissions at all. So I'm very, very excited to roll this out as well. We announced this in November, and again, we're reaching partners from all over the world to try to deploy this. We have to do this quickly. That can make a big, big impact on CO2 reduction. How did Moore's Law help us here? It allows us to use less materials. We can use more software and less steel. We can use less labor. We can just throw these things out in the field and the camera aligns everything for us. No, no surveying. There's no calibration because it's being calibrated consistently, constantly. So Moore's Law really can help us in almost every area. I'm just giving you these two examples right now, but what I feel we need to do in the other thousand examples is figure out ways to use computation, to use the power of this, now in that small size, to try and address these problems in a very, very novel way that we finally have the technology to do. And finally, we can make heat now for less than the price of burning stuff. I told you that's the, the chemistry age was burning everything in sight. The physics age will be making heat from the sun at less than the price of burning stuff. We now can make heat from the sun at less than one cent per kilowatt hour. So what do we need to do next? Take carbon out of the atmosphere. Let's say we could even stop putting all the CO2 in the atmosphere by all these methods and many others that we need to work on. We also have to go backwards in time. We're at a very, very bad point with the amount of carbon we have in the atmosphere. We need to take CO2 out. That's very hard. It's very hard to filter CO2 the atmosphere because we're putting so much up and you have to move a lot of air to do it. In fact, just since the beginning of my talk, just in 10 minutes, we put 1.5 billion additional pounds of CO2 in the atmosphere around the Earth. And you need a Colosseum's worth of air to take one ton out. So you need to move a lot of air. So you need to filter a lot of air to take that out. The current methods are way too expensive because you need to have big fans to move that air. You need to put it through filtration system. I'm hoping we can make a way where we use the low-cost storage of energy vault to move the air, the low-cost heat from heliogen to actually remove the CO2 from a sponge, a CO2 sponge, and get the cost way, way down. The power of this, it will be like a tree. It will be like planting the Trillion Tree Initiative. We need to do that, but we also need to go backwards faster than trees because we can make a super tree. Again, Moore's Law can allow us to make a super tree that's 100 times better than a tree. We can actually take out 100 times more CO2 per amount of land than a tree can. This would be an example. With one acre of this system, we could take out one ton of CO2 per day. That's equivalent of 100 acres of forest. So it's 100 times more effective. What that means is we could take a patch of land 390 miles square, and take out all the CO2 of mankind. Every car, every bus, every truck, every plane, we could take out everything with that amount of land. And we don't need any water, we just need the desert sunshine. So it's actually possible, all we have to do, I say all we have to do, is get the price down. We have to get the price low enough so we can scale this to that amount of land and we could actually zero out all the CO2. My dream is to do that. Each of these businesses can be trillion dollar businesses. All we have to do is beat the price of fossil fuels and there's enormous business, as I said earlier. As you can tell, I'm very passionate about making these a reality in my lifetime. I'd love to find ways to work together and share other ideas about how to take these same techniques and apply them to many, many other businesses. I just got back from the World Economic Forum last week. 
I was walking along the promenade in Davos. I ran across people who had come in from all over Europe on the electric train, driven in to protest and try and make more awareness about this. I ran into these kids from the Swiss Federation. It was so exciting to see their passion for making a difference. I followed them to the protest that Greta was leading. She's unbelievable. She has changed the conversation. I've been to World Economic Forum before, and all anybody talked about was money, GDP growth, profits, everything. Finally, the conversation is about climate change. These, these kids have changed the conversation. We haven't solved it yet, but they really, really have changed the conversation. That's a great start. I think technology is the solution, and we really need to do it. Here we are in 2020. I really thought about this a lot at New Year's time as we enter this new decade. What are the odds that all of us here in this room are alive in the exact decade that could be the turning point of the Earth and all of civilization? I mean, this is the decade. These next eight or 10 years that we have are the chance to do this. We have to hurry. We have to do it fast. Back when I was her age, starting my little company, Solar Devices, there were 300 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere going up at two per year. Now there's 417 going up seven per year. I never could have imagined we would be in that situation. I didn't even know what that was back when I was doing my little company solar devices. I feel we need to go back and give her, our kids, all the future generations, the world we inherited, the 300 part per million world that we grew up in. That would be an incredible thing. I also have to thank all of you. Look, I'm right here in Pasadena. I live about a mile that way. My office ideal labs a mile that way. I went to college two miles that way. So many of you in this audience have helped me build my career. You've bet on me and my successes. You've helped me through my failures. I am totally working on what I'm so passionate about right now, and I'm so grateful to all of you for giving me the chance to work on what I truly care about. Thank you so much. You've been a great audience. <laughs>